Today's show is going to deal with topics that best can be put under the category of politically incorrect historiography concerning the JFK assassination. Well, you may wonder, what's politically correct or incorrect about um, the JFK assassination? Well, the fact is, is that in light of the fact that nowadays you see so many people tend to blame America first for any catastrophe in our country, if you look at things in that light, you'll notice that generally the, they blame it all on American institutions, America itself, the CIA or the FBI, or right-wingers, uh, the John Birch Society, or basically a cabal of people who hated John F. Kennedy. But notice that they're virtually never members of the left of any type of Marxist conspiracy. See, that's my point. We're going to interview today Sean DeGrilla. Sean DeGrilla wrote the book, Malcontent, Oswald's Confession by Conduct. Uh, and I think it will give you a totally different spin on Lee Harvey Oswald and the death of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Enjoy the show. And now for the next 30 minutes, as the world turns. And I gave it a great deal of thought, Grandpa. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, then I entered the United States Marine Corps, starting out as a private, working my way up through the ranks uh, to the... Uh, position of Buck Sergeant. Yeah, just Google that, Lee Harvey Oswald, Marine Corps. He never reached corporal in the U.S. Marine Corps, and he never, ever became a sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps. That's lies in the span of about eight seconds. Lee Harvey Oswald struck me as a young boy full of bitterness and hate. I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. I didn't shoot anybody, sir. I, I work in that building. Were you in the building? Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back up, man. Come on, man. No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I live in the Soviet Mr. Oswald, uh, I'm curious about your personal background. Uh, if you could tell us something about uh, where you came from, your education, and uh, your, your career to date, we'd be interested. I'd be very happy to. I was born in New Orleans in 1939. Uh, for a short length of time during my childhood, I lived in Texas and in New York. Uh, during my junior high school days, I attended Beauregard Junior High School. I attended that school for two years. Uh, then I went to Warren Eastern High School. Then my family and I moved to Texas. Uh, I continued my schooling there. Uh, then I entered the United States Marine Corps in 1956. Uh, I spent three years in the United States Marine Corps, starting out as a private, working my way up through the ranks uh, to the uh, position of Buck Sergeant. Did you kill the president? No, I've not been charged with that. A policeman hit me. In Dallas, the prime suspect still is being questioned. He is 24-year-old Lee Oswald of Dallas, a former Marine who spent some time in Russia, who at one time had applied for Soviet citizenship. His, and his mother, who lives in a Dallas suburb. She was also questioned 
and said, I am heartbroken about this. He is really a good boy. Here comes Oswald down the hall again. Did you find that rifle? Just as fast as you people have been getting, but I emphatically deny these charges. Oswald has hustled through a doorway. Sean DeGrilla is an author. He's a 17-year uh, law enforcement veteran. He's a recipient of the Medal of Valor as well, given his... Uh, Horrock work as a police officer uh, in the state of Florida, and has provided material support to the FBI, MBI, gang unit, and various local, state, and federal agencies. This is a seasoned, experienced law enforcement professional who has a very, very deep skill set about crime, crime solving, perpetration of crimes, and, and spotting criminal profiles. And Sean has relied upon his extensive law enforcement ex- training and experience to delve into the guilt or innocence of Lee Harvey Oswald. And uh, unless you think that that's a cold case. But he commissioned the first ever 21st century computer voice stress analysis of Lee Harvey Oswald's statements that were recorded in 1963. This groundbreaking and innovative work, together with his uh, deep skills obtained in law enforcement, produced startling results, finally solving one of the most heartbreaking crimes in American history using the assassin's very own words and actions that give the complete picture on what he really did. His Sean's book, as a result of this painstaking work, is called Malcontent, Lee Harvey Oswald's Confession by Conduct. And what I like about this book is the fact that, you know, it brings to the table uh, a serious experience that, that's relevant to solving a crime. So let me bring you on there. How are you doing today? You're- Thank you for having me. It's, a, it's an honor. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always happy to have on fascinating guests. And you're in that category. Sean, the, the most fascinating part of this book, I think, is what you bring to the table. That is uh, not only your law enforcement experience, but this incredible work that's on the vanguard of forensic technology, computer-aided voice stress analysis. Tell the audience, what is CVSA, or computer voice stress analysis, please? In layman's terms, you can look at it this way. Uh, the human voice has an AM and an FM frequency, like a radio. Uh, the AM frequency is the audible, the voice that we hear. The FM frequency is the inaudible. And when we are being deceptive, when we are not telling the truth, the FM frequency dissipates, and the dissipation of that frequency is what the CVSA registers. If there are no countermeasures to it, unlike the polygraph, or there are countermeasures to it. There are no known countermeasures. Alcohol doesn't affect it, so it's it's, it's the real deal. So, so somebody can't take quaaludes or something like that? or No, absolutely not. And in Malcontent, I even produced the charts that show that Oswald had no alcohol in his system because he didn't drink anyways, and that he had no barbiturates in his system. So that did not so they, a factor. They, so they conducted a, a drug and alcohol test on Lee Harvey Oswald when he was captured? They, they did. Well, that was during the autopsy. Okay, so then, anyway, so basically, it's kind of like a lie detector test, but it's even maybe even more foolproof. It is. I hate to say, I mean, I hate to say the word lie detector test. However, essentially, Oswald took a lie detector test and never even knew it. You know, I love cold cases. We, you know, DNA doesn't really play a factor in this case anymore. This is the next best thing. We always hear, we see on the news all the time, this, you know, 30-year-old, 4-year-old case you know, was solved by DNA. Well, here we go. We've got something, I, I think, you know, that's almost comparable to that. Uh, right. A tool that was not available back then, but now we can use that retrospectively and nail down Oswald's guilt. Okay, great. L- let me ask you a question. What statements did you use? What statements were recorded by Lee Harvey Oswald? Did, did you zero in on a few specific ones that, that uh, were actually recorded? Did I use... For example, he was uh, arrested in New Orleans three months before Dallas. He was asked, uh, uh, are you a, do you consider yourself a Marxist? He goes, yes, I'm a Marxist. That showed no 
deception whatsoever. We believe, we know that uh, Oswald followed Karl Marx. He read Das Kapital, and he believed he was a Marxist. Oswald was asked to give his biography during the New Orleans radio interview, and he goes, he was discharged from the Marine Corps as a buck sergeant. And buck and sergeant had extreme uh, hard block stress, because we all know that he was discharged as a uh, private first class. We can prove that. These things are provable. So then I went on to Dallas, because Dallas, everybody wants to know about Dallas. And uh, he was asked several questions. You know, did you shoot the president? No. Did you kill the president? No. And that right there showed really interesting results. He said, did you shoot the president? He said, no. And he had high block stress on that. And then he was asked, did he kill the president? And he said, no. But there's only medium block stress, because there's a difference between shooting somebody and killing someone. Oswald knew he shot President Kennedy. He may not have known whether or not he killed him. Right. The CBSA recognized the difference, just like Oswald did. When they asked him about uh, the shooting of the president, wasn't it something whereby they said, no, did you shoot the president? And he said, no, I have not been charged with that yet. Well, that's the midnight press conference. So the, the two samples I told you about were during the, uh, when Oswald was being transferred through the uh, third floor uh, oh, okay. Yes. Interesting. So I, I didn't that, really know about that. So, so what? What do you remember verbatim what his statement was? Really, the midnight press conference. It was, uh, "Did you kill the president?" No, I've not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. The first thing I heard about it was when the newspaper reporters in the hall and his and his voice cracked when he said "hall" asked me that question. So he goes, "No, I have not been charged with that." So I ran that, and no showed hard block stress. I have not showed no stress. It was in the same breath, it was the same continuous answer, and it showed that Oswald lied when he said, no, I did not kill the president, and then told the truth, I have not been charged with that because he was not charged with killing JFK until after that midnight press conference. So the CBSA is very sensitive, it can recognize uh, fluctuations. So Oswald, it, it can recognize, you know, Oswald told a, uh, told a lie and then told the truth in the same breath. And the CBSA recognized that. It's amazing. And also something I'd like to add about that. I mean, in effect, he also was using the truth in kind of an evasive manner because he wasn't really directly answering the question. He wasn't. He, you know, was no, no, I've not been charged with that. No, the question is, did you kill the president? No, I've not been charged with that. It's very, not, very dis dismissive, nonchalant, you know. And it's like, that's not a normal response. We would be absolutely, you know, uttering our you know, innocence and asking for an attorney and saying, you've got the wrong guy. Why well, you've got me, the, the real murderer is running around Dallas somewhere. No, he goes, no, I'm not in charge of that. So you right. know, it's just, even these answers can just give it away. Yeah, sure. Okay, great. Now, he concerning knows. the voice stress analysis that you commissioned, I want to ask you a couple things. One is, tell us about the, the, the caliber, no pun intended, because we're talking about assassination and the killing of Officer <laughs> Tippett. But, you know, no amount of detraction can get away from the fact that I think you use very, very high quality, extremely experienced, very competent voice stress analyst experts. Tell us about those experts that reviewed well, here's the, thing. the analysis. Yeah, I could have taken a week-long course and been certified in the CVSA, but it would, have, it would not mean anything because there was no metric by which to compare my experience with it. I have no experience with it. I haven't interviewed anybody. So I got the number two man in, in the CVSA in the world. The first one is Dr. Charles Humble, who created the CVSA in the 80s. I used Jerry Crotty from Crotty Investigations, and I sent Jerry Crotty several audio samples, and I said, hey, I'm writing a book. Here are some samples. Can you tell me what you have? I didn't tell him what I think it should be. I didn't tell him what I want it to be. I said, do these for me. Let me know what you think. And they were spot on. He's done. He's the world's most premier recognized CBSA experts. In fact, he created the 
the question for sex offenders that are now used throughout the CVSA community, law enforcement, federal government. In fact, in my book, Malcontent, I have real-life CVSA samples from Jerry's law enforcement career. Those are all sex offender questions and results. It shows exactly what a person who's telling the truth, that, that graph will look like, and those who are being deceptive, what that graph looks like. So you can't get any better than that. There's also the issue of, there was a previous voice stress analysis that was um, published by another That's author, right. I think in the, was it was in the 70s or early 80s. Tell us about that other and, test, that other and that book that was apparently written about it. That, um, that was in 1975. That, and, you know, the conspiracy theorists, they'll, they'll embrace George O'Toole's The Assassination Tapes published in 75, but they'll dismiss my results. And, and I totally destroyed George O'Toole, and here's how. He took a three-day orientation course in the PSE, which was the Psychological Stress Evaluator. Um, it had just been created. There was no metric by which to compare its validity to it at all. It had just been created. And, you know, he just took this course and he took these four, he, he took these samples of witnesses and, and police officers and ran through himself, having no prior experience, and came up with the, the result that also was telling the truth. The thing is, that's incorrect. He used the PSE, and in the, the PSE, you can switch, switch between mode uh, sequence one and sequence two mid-test. So sequence one is for male voices, because our, our voices have bass. Sequence two, or mode two, was for female voices, because it's absent of bass. I showed Dr. Charles Humble, who created the CVSA, and who actually worked with George O'Toole incredibly back in the 70s. And he immediately pointed to the chart in O'Toole's book and said, George, 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 what are you doing? Because he pointed to the chart, and I have it in my book, where he switched from mode one or sequence one to sequence two midway during the test, and it skewed the results of his Oswald chart to the point where it showed Oswald was telling the truth when he wasn't. The CVSA, you cannot change modes during the test, and that's, that's, a, that's a safeguard, so you, don't, you can't skew the results. Now, why did he do that? The intentionality is only known to him. He passed away in 2001, and um, his family did not respond to any of my requests for interviews. I don't know why he did that. I did publish my book, a picture of O'Toole with, you know, Mark Lane, Robert Groden, Donald Freed, Jim Garrison. So he ran on that conspiracy group in the 70s. And I proved that it was absolutely incorrect. He said he had, George O'Toole said he had more charts of Oswald. He only published one. Those have never been found. I, I wrote to Dector and talked to the person who owns that company when George O'Toole did this test. They have no records of anything anymore. So it's, I think his research was wholly devoid of any serious scientific robustness. And that's why it was so important for my book to get the premier authority in the CVSA uh, so that we couldn't have this type of argument for my book. So there was uh, something that you went to considerable expense to do that. Um, so you mentioned that uh, uh, was it Charles Humble who was involved Dr. with? Uh, Humble, correct. Right, he was involved with also your book as well, right? That's correct. Now I had I had um, Charles. I had um, I'm sorry, I had Jerry Crotty uh, do the actual test, but he ran it through Dr. Charles Humble because he is the premier authority in the world, and it was important that I well. get you know. His approval. And then I had another person who, you know, there are only three top CVSA examiners in the world. One of them is dead. So um, master examiners. And I had it run by one of the master examiners. And I, and I pushed and I published that letter in my book, that documentation saying, yes, these tests are correct. And another thing I want to add is there were no charts I left out of my book. Every single chart that Jerry generated is in my book. I left nothing out, well, unlike George O'Toole, who said he had more, never published it, uh, can't find it. Uh, I want complete and total transparency. I think it's very important. I think it's lacking right, sure. in conspiracy books. And that's right. what I think gives uh, Malcontent much credibility.
But what's the difference? Is there any difference between the voice stress analysis equipment that, that O'Toole used versus what you use in the 21st century? Well, he's a totally different machine. Back at that time, they found a few more now, but I wanted to actually reproduce O'Toole's PSE examination using a PSE. And the styluses are broken, or they can't find the paper or the parts. You just can't find the parts anymore. Now, subsequent to my publishing, they did find somebody that had like three of them. But, uh, you know, it was antiquated machine. Yes, they're still used, but they're being updated. But the CVSA is recognized as the premier authority on that. If you would have shown to gorilla.com, there's a tab on there for the CVSA. You'll see the court cases where they've now been accepted in certain uh, jurisdictions. It's becoming more and more widely accepted. And it absolutely is the gold standard for uh, truth verification. As you know, and as I know, there's, a, there's quite a bit of um, infighting among those who uh, study the JFK assassination between the, the conspiracy theorists and those who, who hold that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone gunman. But let's look at something else. Let's bring your law enforcement experience that uh, is extensive and, you know, helps you to look at Lee Harvey Oswald like any other potential accused criminal. What is it that you found about him in his behavior the week of the assassination, November you know, 1963, that really strikes your attention and, and, and you know, works with the voice stress analysis to create a profile of guilt or innocence on Lee Harvey Oswald? Well, Lee Harvey Oswald was singled out for a reason, was arrested for a reason. Lee Harvey Oswald gave himself away. It's called consciousness of guilt. So, for example, would you flee the scene of a crime? Well, yeah, I mean, you might. If there's shots being fired, it's confusing, you're scared. Yeah, you might. But would you flee the scene? Would you change your appearance? Would you arm yourself? Would you try to kill would you kill a police officer would you kill arresting police officers would you have selective answering of questions so for example i'll tell you about russia and the types of vehicles and appliances and clothing they had there but i'm not going to tell you about where exactly i was or i'm going to give you different answers about where i was during the assassination so you know if you have nothing to hide the truth is not going to be a mystery you're going to say the same thing over and over and over again you don't have to remember what you said the first lie you told because it's not a lie it's the truth the truth is ingrained inside you so you know it, he gave himself away no one else acted the way lee harvey oswald did during the assassination no he had two forms of id on him he had a pistol on him why would you do that? Why would you flee the scene and change your name? Why would you have the taxi driver drive five blocks south of where you lived? Because you're checking the place to make sure the cops aren't there waiting for you. You know, so why, you know, these things all, if you study Oswald, classic criminal behavior. Criminals usually act the same in law enforcement. They look for patterns. And it's the totality of the circumstances. It's not just him leaving the book depository. It's him leaving the depository and all the other item I just enumerated for you, it screams guilt. So my book deals with Oswald's actions and then his words. And no one has bothered to do a CVSA examination of Oswald. And he gave himself away. Didn't even know it. His actions gave himself away. And I'm sure you recognized it later. You know, I think the reason why Tippett uh, stopped Oswald is because I've had it happen to me. People are walking down the street. They see a marked police car. They got the lights on top, distinctive coloring. And they, and they, uh, they turn around and, and walk off or you know, trying to conceal themselves. That's I think what Oswald did. I think he was walking west on 10th, saw Tippett, he made a bow face, sort of walking the other way, and I think that was suspicious. I would I stopped people hundreds of times for that. And I'm sure Tippett was no different. And so, yeah, I, it, yeah, so when I read that, Tippett slowly opened the car door, slowly got out, wasn't any fast or, or no, or furtive movements. 
But I think once again, we'll never know what Oswald said or did. But, you know, um, I'm sure he probably asked him his name. He probably said Alec Heidel. You know, he had ID on him uh, as Heidel because he knew that Lee Harvey Oswald was missing from the depository. So Oswald knew this, of course. He knew he was missing, so he probably gave him a, a tip of a false name, probably. That's what I would do. I would give, you know, and so he's got a gun on him. And I think that Tim was going to frisk him and ask for his ID, probably run his ID, realize there'd be no record found, you know, in the database for an Alec Heidel. And um, something Oswald said or did or both caused Tippett to get out of his patrol car instead of just saying, okay, sir, have a good day and driving off and going home in an hour and a half because he was almost at the end of a five-day work week. He had the weekend to look forward to. He had a uh, his uh, cousin's uh, – a football game to go to, or truly get. So I mean, it's that night. So it's just, you know, something caused Tippett to get out. And once again, right. Oswald gave himself away. Right. So tell us about what happened when Oswald left the scene of the shooting of AG, uh, Officer Tippett. Yeah. So what, so what does what he do? He empties his revolver right away. He reloads right away, and he's ready to go again. He's ready. He's ready to defend himself again. He changes his appearance again. He takes his jacket off. He knows they're going to be looking for a white male with this type of this, you know, this type, this style of Eisenhower type jacket. He knows that once again he's changing his appearance, just like what he did when he came into the rooming house. He changed his appearance. Right, right. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about that. Concerning his um, his, his trip in the taxi cab to the rooming house, he gets off yeah. five blocks past the rooming house. And I understand that. How did he enter and exit the rooming house? And it, it, I think it's bears, bears repeating. Tell us about that. Sure. So he has a taxi cab drop him off at Beckley and Neely. Does an about face, goes back. He runs inside. Now, the, the housekeeper is just firing up the TV. You can hear it, but you can't see it. The tubes are still warming up. And she goes, oh, you're in a hurry. Even the book. She testifies in the Warren Commission. He he was just he was he was anything but running. He didn't say, "Oh yeah, I was there." Hey, any updates? What happened? Is he, is he okay? He runs. He's the only one really disinterested in the city of Dallas. Amazing. You know, I, I would imagine about what just happened in their own city. He was there. Right. Uh, at the scene of the crime. Yeah, he was there. Oh yeah, I was there. Let me tell you about it. No, what is it? Instead of you know, he liked to read books. Why didn't he just? Oh, you know what? Uh, you know, the work is closed for the day. I think I'll take a nap or I'll, I'll go in my room and read a book or I'll sit with you and I'll watch TV. No. And, and, he, yeah, and, no. yeah, go ahead. Well, he, he puts a jacket on. He, he arms himself. He closes the door, first of all, to his room so she really can't see what he's doing. Uh, and then he runs out again. And then he stands at the northbound Beckley bus stop at Beckley and Zhang for, for a short time. She sees him. But the, every second that he is at that corner – which is just one block north of one house north of where he lived, is every second the police have of finding him, of recognizing, of chasing him, and he's got to go. The bus doesn't show up; he's right. got to go. Right, right. So then, uh, what does he do? He, he how long, by the way, is the is the walk between the rooming house in Beckley and it's. It's nine-tenths of a mile, and we don't know. I think what he did was, I think he turned right, and there's a there's a park behind that house, which still exists today, behind there. I think he used side streets. He was, you know, Oswald was street smart. He had street smarts, and so he knew, I would imagine, that the police used a major thoroughfare to drive, like I did. Beckley, Zhang, you know, Jefferson, all that kind of stuff. So Why do you he say stayed that? off the major streets, and I'm not surprised that no one really saw him until – 
he was, you know, near 10th and Patton because everybody was inside watching TV. Everybody was inside listening to the radio and they were transfixed. It's like we were at 9 11. Oh, this is amazing. Yeah, this is yeah. exactly, this is a moment where, and we, you know, we were in the electronic age. Uh, we had other radios and those who could afford it, which, you know, in 1963 was, you know, getting to be the majority of the, the households in America or in Dallas. Uh, they had TVs and they're watching, and there was a heck of a lot to report, uh, or at least to comment on. Uh, right. And uh, why, why is it? Now, you said that Oswald was street smart. Now it takes a cop to be able to spot that. Uh, not all, only, but I mean, w- there must be something about what you've learned about Oswald that causes you, as a police officer, to say that. Why, why do you say that he was street smart? Well, his actions just screamed out at me. This guy knew to change his appearance. He knew to arm himself. He knew to take the side streets, which, which is what I believe he did. Um, and then when, when he sees a police car approaching on Jefferson with lights and siren, he ducks into a, a, a shoe store, and he kind of conceals himself a little bit and kind of until he waits till the police officers leave, and he ducks out. And what's the next best place to go? A theater. I think he was headed either to a, a library, which he was very comfortable in his whole life, or a theater. And he ducks and he's panicking. He knows the noose is tightening around his neck. He knows, everybody knows, you cannot get away with a crime like this. You're, you're, they're going to find you eventually. There's no way right. you're going to go to Mexico. They don't want you. Cuba doesn't want you. Um, there's nowhere he can go. They're going to, someone's going to dime you out. No one wants you around. And he's just on borrowed time, and he knows that. Uh, I don't think he expected right. to get out of the depository alive right. at all. Yeah, so what does he do? It, he, we, once again, we look for patterns, right? And Oswald had a pattern. He would go home with Bill Fraser on Friday, spend the weekend at the, at the paint house, and come back to, with, to work on Monday. What does he do? I believe he saw on Wednesday, the Tuesday edition of the, of the paper, I think he saw it on Wednesday because he, he didn't buy anything, that – JFK's motorcade was coming into Dealey Plaza. And I think on Wednesday he realized this is going to happen, or I'm going to try to make this happen anyways. And so he deviated from his pattern. He went home on Thursday instead of Friday. And under the, under the guise of uh, curtain rods, well, I've been to his rooming house. I talked to Pat, whose uh, family owns that house, and she admitted to me, that during the research of my book, that yes, this room did have curtain rods. They no longer exist. They've covered up the holes, the original holes in the wood. But she admitted to me that yes, this this house, this room did have curtain rods, and they were not allowed to make any alterations at all. You couldn't even eat this room, much less yeah, sure, you know, that was- make changes to the to the to the you know to the upholstery or whatever. So yeah, so he changed his pattern. And then those people who really believe he went home to get curtain rods are living in a fantasy world. And for example, he. You know, he kind of, he, he wraps everything up in, in a bag. He throws it in the back of, of Fraser's car on Friday morning before Fraser gets there. He also gets there early enough where he can go in the back of his car and not really be seen with it. Fraser happens to see it because he's looking over his right shoulder as he's back in the car out. And then once Fraser gets to the depository, they park, also gets out. And he holds the package, not like a normal package where it's perpendicular to your body. He holds it parallel. So it's the same size as your body. So if you're looking at a distance, you're looking at somebody, you're not going to see it. And then also, why on earth, what's the big deal with wrapping it up? Why would you have to wrap up curtain rods? I mean, is that going to, gee, I mean, you, you don't want to be seen with curtain rods? I mean. Twilight last day. 
Get trailing. The bomb first 